Welcome back to part two of the ICAW podcast, More Than a Number. $3.6 trillion. Corruption, cronyism and capitalism. In part one, we heard from the head of the Magnitsky Global Justice Campaign, Bill Browder, and we continue part two with more of his story. I began by asking him about the new UK unexplained wealth order. Well, it used to be if you go to the police here and say, I've discovered that the blood money from my case in a foreign country has come to a London bank and you should freeze it. Have you said that to them? Oh, yeah. I've, I've said it all the time. And the, to Met Police. You've gone into a police station I've and got, said this. I know. I've gone to the Serious Fraud Office, the National Crime Agency, the Metropolitan Police, the HMRC. With all your documents. And, and, and they all say, go away. We're not interested. And historically, they, they, they would say that, you know, to, to the extent that they were being genuine and they weren't being sort of... Uh, Unhelpful. Yeah. One could make an argument that in order for them to go to court and seize the properties, they have to prove that the origin of the money was illegal. We have a rule of law. Right. So, but they have to prove it's illegal, which means they have to go back to the country where it was stolen from to get evidence. And if the country that it was stolen from is a kleptocracy... You're never going to get that evidence. They're not going to give the evidence. And so they could genuinely argue, we, couldn't get, we can't get the evidence from Russia because they're all crooks over there. And so w- why even bother? So, and, and that was their argument. However, the law has been changed as of 2018... And the law says instead of having to prove it was illegal money and then go to the other, if you see something that's obviously has all the hallmarks of being suspicious, you can go to the person who got the money and say, prove that it was legal. This is quite a big change for law because normally with British law, it's you are innocent until proven guilty. And this is almost you're guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. Let's just look at it realistically, which is if you have a car dealership in France and you get a bunch of money... And they say, where'd you get the money from to buy that house? You say, my car dealership, and here's the receipts. And here's the accounts right. that I have to file with, right, with French everybody. agents. So, I mean, if you have a legitimate business, there's no reason why you can't prove it. So what needs to change then? Enforcement. The enforcement of laws is, is absolutely unbelievably bad here. This is the worst country. So I have, I have real, real live... The UK is the worst. It's worse than, it's worse than like Cyprus, worse than, than Latvia. Um, in terms of enforcement... I mean, there's, there's all sorts of terrible stuff that goes on in Cyprus and Latvia. But in terms of law enforcement... Is that just because there's no laws in Latvia and Cyprus? No, no, no. So in the Magnitsky case, we found we've been tracing the $230 million. And what do we find? We found the money went to many, many different countries. Every country we find that it goes to, we take the evidence, which is effectively the same evidence with some different details. The last mile is different, but everything up to the last mile is the same. And we go to the law enforcement. And... 16 countries have opened criminal investigations. There's active investigations going on in Switzerland and France and Spain and, and, and all sorts of places. They said investigations. Is it they've frozen the money or they're investigating? Or, or, or both. Okay. Or both. However, when we went to the um, uh, National Crime Agency here, they wrote us a note back saying, we don't see that a, that a domestic investigation into money laundering is the best way forward. And this was the country that got... So, so Magnitsky money, that $230 million stolen is in the UK system somehow, and it's not frozen. It's not frozen or being investigated. So what about the financial services industry here in the UK? So it's, it, it's one thing going after the individuals that have taken the money, the kleptocrats, but what about all the advisors that allow it to happen? What, what do you think needs to happen to them? The facilitators. The, the, the enablers, the facilitators. There's a lot of money to be made in, yeah. in, in, in looking after kleptocrats. And nobody goes to jail. So the moment you start sending people to jail 
for participating or enabling money laundering, the entire money laundering system will grind to a halt. Because so, so what needs to happen is the advisors that allow these kleptocrats to take money, steal money from their own countries and then dump it somehow in the Western banking system, those advisors need to be put in jail. Well, I would say the bankers who are, who are facilitating the transfers um, when, when it's obvious that there's, that there's money laundering and don't do anything and collect the, dis- Huge fees. the fees should go to jail. And it doesn't take that many to go to jail. You just have to send a few to jail and everybody will panic and stop, stop. doing it. Anywhere in the world they've been to jail? Um, and in the United States, people go to jail all the time for this type of stuff. But the system is so permissive here in the UK and in the rest of Europe. They have to up their game. Otherwise, this is just going to carry on and on and on. Let's now move on to the personal cost to you. So you were a, a capitalist. You were a very, very wealthy hedge fund manager. You had your life mapped out. In one year, your fund was the best performing fund in the world. You made two and a half times the money for your customers. You were fated around the world. And now here you are as a global campaigner, not earning money anymore. (laughs) How has that journey been personally? I'm actually a much happier man doing what I'm doing now than I ever was as a businessman. Uh, You're making the world a better place. Well, you're trying to. Fighting for justice is is infinitely more satisfying than fighting for money. Now, I couldn't do this if I didn't have money in the bank beforehand, but I love going after the bad guys. I like to help people. How much does it cost you? It's it's cost me everything. It's cost me my personal safety. It's cost me my ability to travel. Um, I have to take huge precautions. There's death threats. There's kidnapping threats. I've been arrested on Russian warrants. In Spain, I was detained in Switzerland. Um, you know, every time I cross a border, I don't know whether I'm going to be arrested or not. Um, they they write that the Russians have made six or seven movies about me that they show on prime time in Russia. About, <laughs> they, they've accused me of being a serial killer, of being a spy, of being an international swindler. At the summit between Putin and Trump in in July of 2018, Putin asked Trump to hand me over, and Trump said, "Yeah, I think that's a great idea." I mean, it's, that must have given you a moment. I've had a lot of moments. Um, but I would say that, that in the end, I'm on a righteous mission. And I feel great about what I'm doing every day. I feel it's, it's a really important um, thing that I'm doing. And, and um, I, you know, deep down, I, I, uh, I feel much, I, I feel sort of righteous and clean in, inside my body. And I can do this, you know, I'll, I'll do this until, until either they take me out or, um, you know, I... I you they, smile. You say they take me out. Do you think they will eventually kill you? The Russian state, in some form or another. I hope not. I hope not. But but I, I but I'd, I'd rather uh, I'd rather live live as a uh, uh, a brave man standing up than a weak man on my knees. When you think back to your lawyer, it was a long time ago now that he was tortured and murdered by the Russian state. I wouldn't say how do you sleep at night, but the responsibility, the guilt. What do you think about that still? Well, that that's what drives me to do all the stuff that I'm doing. Is that uh, I feel like um, uh, that that's but that's what I owe to him, that his death can't be a meaningless death and that we have to make sure that he didn't die for nothing. And when he hasn't died for nothing, he, his name is now on laws all over the world, which create unbelievably um, scary consequences for kleptocrats and human rights violators. And I think that, that a lot of people will have second thoughts about doing bad things out of fear that their lives will be completely disrupted by the Magnitsky Act. How old are you now? 55. When do you think you'll stop campaigning? And I'll stop, but you know, hopefully, I can do this until I'm 90. I mean, it's um, uh, 
there's no uh, there's no mandatory retirement. Bill Browder there. Joining me now is Max Hayward from the anti-corruption campaigning organisation Transparency International. Welcome, Max. Thanks, Louise. It's great to be on the show with you. What did you make of Bill's story? Well, I think it's a really, really tough and difficult story with a very clear victim in this case. So someone who was tortured and murdered and also their colleagues who went through a really, really and still are going through an incredibly difficult time. But this is really unusual in that we have such a clear victim who is identified. In many corruption cases, you have thousands of anonymous and dispersed victims. So if we think about the uh, Angola case with uh, Isabel dos Santos, the, the daughter of the former president of the country, who has become one of the richest people in Africa through doing business with the state, essentially. Those are funds that should have gone to healthcare and education. And there are potentially hundreds of thousands of people who have, in many cases, even died because of lack of access to that healthcare and education, whose names will never be known. So that, I think, is, is perhaps one of the unusual things about the Magnitsky case, that we have you know, such a clear victim, unlike in other cases. And possibly why it's gained so much international traction. Absolutely. So that, that also helps in terms of having a clear victim and a clear story helps a lot with the compassion and, and you know, the attention of, of the media to these stories. And of course, it is a very, very important story. But what I'm trying to say is that there are hundreds of thousands of anonymous people in other parts of the world who have suffered also dramatic consequences of corruption and whose names will not be known. So I think it's also important to try and tell those stories more often. Also with me is Mark Campbell, Director of Capacity Building at ICAEW. Hello, Mark. Hello, Louise. Capacity Building. What is it? Well, uh, contingency capacity building is a relatively recent history, largely about 20 years, although there were some initiatives before that. But it's all about helping countries which have a very weak accountancy profession. Accountants are necessary for companies and economies to flourish and grow sustainably. And countries with weak accountancy face an uphill struggle. So accountancy capacity building is very much about embarking on a journey which will lay out the foundations for sustainable economic growth, particularly in the space of accountancy. Your thoughts on what Bill had to say? Well, it is an immense story and uh, indeed very moving and it is almost difficult to comprehend the scale. But I would say that one very important and uplifting takeaway is is really that Bill acted with tenacity and uh, being so instrumental in the enactment of the Magnitsky Act of 212 and that has since become an important weapon in the fight against financial crime. Now, we heard from Bill that a trillion dollars has been stolen in Russia. He regards it as the biggest kleptocracy the world has ever seen. Max, can you just give us a sense of the problem globally, the scale of it? Sure. So these numbers are very, very difficult to estimate, but any estimate you take has a trillion in it. So, for example, there's an estimate that developing countries lose one trillion, again, per year, in this case, in illicit flows, as they're called, going from developing countries to the West. There's an estimate that offshore centres, tax havens, basically, have at least 11 trillion stashed away. Again, money that should be going to health, to education, to building better roads, to invest in green infrastructure. So all of these numbers are just, you know, mind-boggling. 
And it's important to remember that that money could also be going directly to improve people's lives. That's the thing that I think can be lost a bit when we talk just about big numbers, right? And I saw one estimate from Chatham House, the UK think tank, that reckons $580 billion has been stolen from Nigeria alone since independence in 1960. I mean, that's just an astonishing amount of money. It's almost so large, I've, I've no idea how large it is. It is a very large number, and that's a lot of schools and it's a lot of hospitals, but it's also a lot of real estate in developing countries. It's also a lot of luxury cars and goods and handbags that are bought in the capitals around the world. There's a lot of things that can be done with that money, and it's maybe one of the key questions of our time. Who's going to benefit from it, and what are they going to do with it? How much of the stolen cash has ever recovered? A tiny fraction, a tiny fraction. I mean, these what are called asset recovery cases, where the, the assets are actually seized and frozen and eventually returned to the country where they came from, it just takes so many years and is so legally complex that it's probably less than 1% of the total. And that's why I think it's so important to focus on preventing the money ever entering a developed country in the first case. So there needs to be a lot more investment in, for example, real estate agents not doing that deal. If there's something suspicious, knowing that it's part of their job to not do that deal. Or so, so, a bank so you mean saying, in yeah. London, a $50 million apartment or... $50 million house in London, the estate agent should question far closer where the money's coming from. Absolutely. And if there's something suspicious or a red flag, they should report it to the authorities. And uh, the authorities should investigate and perhaps prevent that sale even going ahead. And the same goes for banks, by the way. Mark, there is some criticism of the accounting profession in Bill's story. So first of all, the auditors who signed off Gazprom's accounts Gazprom shares are floated on stock markets in London, Berlin, Frankfurt, Singapore. There's an ADR for American investors to buy. It's a company that many of us could own in our pension funds. And then secondly, the Danske Bank scandal, where around $200 billion of suspicious money from Russian and other Eastern European states allegedly laundered through the Estonian subsidiary of the Danish parent. So what were the accountants doing in these cases, Mark? I'm not in a position to comment in any detail on these exact cases. Indeed, the Danske Bank case at a late stage of investigation and prosecution, so it would be inappropriate for me to comment. However, what I can say on behalf of ICAW and chartered accountants more broadly is that we do train our students very, very much in professional ethics. It's very much at the heart of our syllabus and related training programmes and we expect them to follow a very clear, strict code of ethics and in instance where the code is not followed for the guilty parties we uh, will hold them to account. So it's a wider problem. How do you see this big kleptocratic problem? Well, we have looked at a very wide range of countries. For example, we've worked in many fragile and conflict-affected states We haven't worked in Russia itself, but we have worked in former Soviet states. And the common theme in financial crime in all of these, in our view, really, is a massive deficiency in one of three pillars. Okay, so what are those three pillars? Uh, Pillar one is all about people, and this includes a wide range of professionals, such as lawyers, accountants, uh, domain experts, and indeed a wide range of employees. 
Pillar two is very much about policies and processes, and this includes all the necessary controls, standards, risk management, audits, conduct, discipline, and so on. And finally, pillar three, law and governance, including regulators, the regulations, and indeed potential political interference and associated law enforcement. Now, all these pillars together need to be strong. And if, for example, a political leader or minister or even chief executive cuts through law and governance with impunity, then the other pillars will be severely weakened and create the perfect storm in which crime becomes systemic. Would you agree, Max? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I think is remarkable is that the tools that are needed to tackle these issues have been known and are available for quite a while. And the key word then in what I think Mark was saying and you were saying was it was around implementation, that there are some positive examples where those tools have been put in place, but they have to be multiplied by a thousand, you know, in the sense of making sure that every relevant sector around the world is actually implementing them to prevent those funds getting out of countries and landing in in other countries in in the first place. So if I had to sort of just summarize the the answer to everything in this case in, in one word, it is going back to implementation and not just of enforcement, but also of prevention. We know what has to be done. It just has to actually get done. Again, in Bill's story, there's criticism of the financial services industry in the UK as well as other countries, the financiers, the lawyers, the advisors. Is that fair, Max? Yeah, absolutely. And there's official data by, uh, there's a global organisation called the Financial Action Task Force, which is the leading global body to tackle these flows of dirty money. And their own assessments of their countries, all the 180 countries in the world or more, they all show that they have weaknesses. So including leading economies, US, UK, Switzerland, even Denmark, all of them have massive, massive gaps. And that is where I think not enough attention has been paid in in, in recent years. There's a lot of stories around the perpetrators of big corrupt acts, but not enough attention has been paid to those countries and those systems that haven't yet been tackled, right? And again, knowing what has to be done, but not doing it. We heard from Bill as well about the unexplained wealth order. He said it was a key piece of legislation, but the problem is enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. We have to take into account it is quite a recent tool, so it still has to be rolled out. But it is just one tool in a broader toolkit. And and just to give you one example, in theory, the authorities in any country have something called an on-site visit, which is what it says. It says they have the power to go and visit any bank or any accountant and knock on the door and say, what are you doing to prevent money laundering? Let me see your systems. How do you check the oranges of the money that you're doing of of your clients? And if they don't have anything in place or they don't have enough in place, they can fine them or in some cases even remove their license. And that very, very rarely happens. You know, so there are so many tools that are available, are known to people who work in the field, but are just not being put in place enough. Mark, you were part of the policy team that helped shape UK law. What did you learn from that? What did you contribute to that? Well, the drafting of anti-money laundering legislation goes back to around 2003. And its enactment was effectively just the first phase of what really needed to be done if UK was to tackle money laundering in a more consistent, more coherent way. And a lot of my work at the National Crime Agency around that time, 2004, 2005, 
was very much around how UK should implement the law in a consistent way. Bear in mind that at that time the 43 police forces in England and Wales very much had their own way of prioritising anti-money laundering and in amongst the other crimes at the time it often took a very low priority. Going back to what Max said earlier, implementation is really where it all needs to be about and where effectively the results are to be measured. So why are you doing this, Mark? Well, in amongst the many challenges we face on our projects, there are really important milestones which make it all worthwhile. For example, on November 2019, we had the pleasure with the United Nations Development Programme and the government of uh, Cambodia of launching an accounting technician qualification to around 350 in an audience, including about 200 smiling faces of young 18-year-olds who were commencing university and about to take that qualification as part of their foundation year. And that got huge coverage in Cambodia television and newspapers. And that's one thing that really jumps off the page and makes it all worthwhile. What is often forgotten in this debate is the human cost to kleptocracies. And Bill explained that really rather beautifully. Max, can you give me an idea of what it's like for ordinary people living under a kleptocratic regime? Sure. I obviously can't give you direct experience, but some of the stories that we hear are really just heartbreaking in the sense that there's so much money that could have gone to highways and roads and and hospitals. And if we think, for example, about the Isabel dos Santos case in Angola, those billions that we were talking about, those big numbers, that is the direct cost of healthcare and hospitals and schools. And it directly affects the people who did not get to benefit from that. So that is literally people dying or not getting treated for their sicknesses or their kids' sicknesses. Angola has a fairly high child mortality rate. Children are dying. Oh, absolutely. It's got one of the highest in the world. I don't know the exact number, but it's absolutely that one of the highest of the world. So, And one of the complicated things with these stories is that the chain of causality, if you will, is so long. So it's so hard to tell the story of, OK, that bank or that accountant or that real estate agent in Paris or London or L.A. or anywhere, there's a direct link between those two events. And it's just such a difficult story to tell about the money came from the state's budget in Angola. And instead of going to help those people, it ended up going through a shell company and then going through a bank. And all these complications make it so difficult to focus minds, if you will, on the consequences when, in fact, there is a direct link. It's just a complicated one. Bill states in the interview that advisers, financiers, lawyers will only stop helping kleptocrats if the personal downside is large. So a fine or losing a job just isn't enough. There needs to be jail time. And there is an example of where this has happened in Brazil. Can you tell me a little bit about it, Max? Sure. So there's been this massive scandal in Brazil, which started two or three years ago, which was not just in Brazil. It was in almost all of Latin America and beyond. It was one of the largest Brazilian infrastructure companies, a construction company that had the remarkable luck of consistently getting contracts from the government. And it turned out that corruption and bribery were pretty much at the heart of their business model. So they had a dedicated team of people who were actually going out and basically bribing public officials to get 
government contracts. At one point, they even had an Excel table, a gigantic Excel table, just to keep track of all the payments to the public officials, a spreadsheet they had, just to keep internally to keep track of what they were paying to whom. And this story came to light thanks to, you know, an investigation by authorities and also journalists. And there are dozens of people, both from the public sector and businessmen, who are either under investigation or already are doing jail time. And this really has been a shift in terms of uh, the message it sends, the forward-looking message it sends. It's not just about punishment for those individuals, deserved as it might be. More importantly is the signal it sends to the rest of society and to the rest of the profession that there is a limit somewhere, that if you do this type of activity, there is a significant chance you might get caught and you will pay a price. And that is what I think is, is really, really important. So yeah, I think that that's one of the most promising uh, developments in, in, in recent years, even though it's, you know, there's, there's some complications to the story as always, but in overall, it's been quite positive. And also, it's given citizens a bit more of an idea of, uh, it's, it's, I think, lowered the tolerance for, for, for corrupt activity. You know, knowing and seeing the faces and seeing how actually many of these people are not masterminds. Many of them were relatively sort of mid-level officials who were managing to enrich themselves. That, I think, helped to fuel people's indignation and, and take to the streets and protest, which again is a really, really positive sign. You mentioned journalists. One organisation fighting kleptocracy is the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. They broke Panama Papers, they broke Paradise Papers, the latest Luanda leaks. Out of all these organisations fighting kleptocracy, which is the most important? Which is the one which we should look at and focus at and say, okay, they're doing a good job, they're making progress? Well, I think the ICAJ that you mentioned are absolutely one of the key journalist organizations in the world. We've had the pleasure of meeting them a couple of times and they're doing amazing work. But again, I think that they are in a way almost trying to replace what authorities should be doing. Taking a broad perspective here, it should not be journalists who are undercovering this type of activity and bringing it to light and forcing the authorities to take enforcement action. It should be the authorities themselves that have the systems in place. And so the leading body here globally is the Financial Action Task Force that I think we were talking about earlier. And they are the ones that 180 governments around the world have signed up to be part of this organization. And on paper, they have said they're going to invest in prevention and in enforcement. And yet their own assessments of their own performance shows pretty shocking results. So if there's one body that I think would be really, really key to talk more about or just to have more focus on in the coming years, that is the one, the Financial Action Task Force, which is really not very well known, but is one of the key drivers here that has to be changing the way it works and becoming a lot more effective in helping and in pushing national authorities to do their jobs. Who does the ICAW work with, Mark, to combat kleptocracy? Well, we work with a lot of international organisations. The World Bank first approached us in 2006 to really encourage us to get much more involved with the practical challenges faced by countries in fragile and post-conflict states. We worked with them in Bangladesh. We then did a very large number of projects across Africa and elsewhere in South Asia. We've since, from about 2010-11, we've gone on to work closely with Asian Development Bank, with the United Nations Development Programme, with our own Department for International Development, our Foreign and Commonwealth Office, with the European Commission. And indeed, we've worked and are working and engaging in partnership with HMRC, 
Transparency International uh, and others. More and more, we do believe that the international community needs to mature its overall approach, needs to consolidate its overall approach to understanding uh, illegal cash flows. Often these involve multiple countries, and that's something that often can get lost. And that's quite a important point, Max, isn't it? That you mentioned only the complexity of the flow. Often it involves this money sloshing through various countries with different regulatory bodies, different governments, different police forces. And that makes it incredibly difficult, one could almost say impossible, to police. Isn't that the fundamental problem? Absolutely. I think, Louise, that that is the fundamental problem. And in fact, most of these cases, if not all, are only possible thanks to that complexity. Complexity is a form of disguising and hiding the trails of money and trying to look at from the other side, from the perpetrator's side. The people who are setting up these schemes, these networks, they are counting on that. They are counting on the fact that national authorities have trouble crossing borders in the sense of getting information. So they are purposefully targeting these gaps in the international system to set up their schemes. It would be much more difficult for them to do so without these gaps and these these lack of coordination between countries, right? So in summary now, if I had to get you to nail your colours to the mast, Max, and tell me what are the three things or three or four things that you really want to see happen in order to fight kleptocracy, what would they be? I would say it would be more resources for key authorities and more independence to do their jobs. So when you talk to law enforcement officials in the vast majority of countries or even the people that are charged with not just investigating but also simply preventing dirty money from flowing and crossing borders, they almost always tell you that they just don't have the data, they don't have the political support, or they don't have the resources they need to do their jobs. That's really interesting. So it's not that the laws don't exist, it's that the enforcers don't have enough resources, money, people, computing power to enforce what's there already. Exactly. So the laws still have gaps in many countries, obviously, but that is not the core problem at the moment. It's just that if you have laws on the books, but there's no one with the capacity or the or the, the money or the power to enforce them, then they just exist on paper. So that would be, I think, absolutely the number one change. And it should start at home. It should be the G7 countries or the G20 countries, the largest economies in the world, that lead the way here also in terms of how they cooperate with other countries, investing a lot more in international cooperation and really making an effort that when they get a request, let's say from the Angolan police, that they respond to that really quickly and really help out their counterparts, which again is not happening enough. Mark, what do you think needs to be done? Well, there is certainly much in the world that is evolving and the pace of evolution seems to get ever faster. Changing times as I mentioned earlier, tends to create the conditions that are effectively the perfect storm for financial crime. And therefore, we need to be a lot more responsive in the international community at responding, uh, really improving the implementation and necessary and associated compliance and legislation. There are some hopes on the horizon for some countries but there is no place for complacency. Regulators particularly need to be watchful and agile, as do policymakers. Legislation and regulation 
must respond very quickly in this changing world. We need to learn the lessons and apply them. In reference to Isabel dos Santos, she has responded to recent corruption allegations denying all wrongdoing. Dos Santos and her husband said they owed their success to hard work and business acumen and she's accused Angola's current president of pursuing a politically motivated witch hunt against her and her family. Well, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Bill Browder, Max Hayward and Mark Campbell. And remember to subscribe to the podcast series so you don't miss an episode.